0: Hello
1: and welcome to the MediaMag podcast, the podcast for students of film and media. I am writer and rakish adventurer, Giles Goff,
2: And I'm photographer and shadowy mastermind, Phil Coleman.
1: And in this podcast we'll be taking some of the trickiest concepts in media and breaking them down in simple terms. So our first question this week comes from aspiring photographer Josh Connor.
2: Hi, Jars and Phil. My name's Josh, and I'm soon to be a student at the Screen and Film School in Manchester. Could you explain to me, what is vertical and horizontal integration?
1: So that is a great question from Josh. So, Phil, how confident do you feel talking about vertical and horizontal integration?
2: Well, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, not, <laughs> it's not something I talk about on, a, on the daily, <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, well, you know, unless I'm doing those shady business deals, all those magnates are to all the time. No,
1: I, 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 I literally don't do that. Fair play. It's one of those concepts that sounds tricky, but I think once you get into it, it's pretty straightforward. And get into it, we will. In <gasps> the theory drop. <laughs> When it comes to this stuff, we are committed to giving you the best possible content, and we're not afraid to share the spotlight to make that happen. So for this week, we're going to be hearing from a special guest. Dr. Steve Connolly is a senior lecturer at Anglia Ruskin University. He's also the author of The Changing Role of Media in the English Curriculum. Let's hear from Steve.
0: My name is Dr. Steve Connolly. I work in the field of media education and media literacy, and I was a media and film studies teacher for about 20 years before I became a university lecturer.
1: Steve, it is wonderful to have you as the, as the guest on our podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Let's get into it. What is vertical and horizontal integration?
0: So these are terms from uh, from economics, really. Media studies and film studies borrow them um, when they need to use them and when they need to describe Uh, what's happening in the film or media business. When we talk about vertical integration, uh, we're really talking about the way that uh, any business acquires other businesses that help it make its product. Mm -hmm. Now, a completely vertically integrated uh, business is one that owns every stage of of the product and supply chain from the the very first stage of production right through to where the consumer gets the product. your vertical integration uh, can apply to any business, but in in film and media, perhaps the, the kind of the best example of it anywhere is what happened during the golden age of Hollywood when you had a small number of companies that were completely vertically integrated. So they made films, they marketed and distributed films, and they exhibited them in cinemas.
1: Just so people know, um, when we talk about the golden age of Hollywood, what sort of period are we talking about?
0: Okay, so generally we're talking from around 1930 to about 1960, so really in the period just after Talking Pictures had started – right up until uh, what we would call now the new, the new wave of Hollywood in, sort of the, in the early 60s. That's the period where the studio system, uh, you know, where, where the film business was dominated by really a handful of companies who completely uh, made that business uh, their own and every aspect of that business their own.
1: So we're almost kind of talking from the jazz singer at the start to like Bonnie and Clyde at the end, that kind of time period.
0: That's right. And Bonnie and Clyde probably is, is a, just uh, it's one of the first films after the end of that period, really. But certainly, if you take the jazz singer as a starting point, you're, you're seeing the dominance of those handful of companies. So we think about the idea of what we call the Big Five studios and the Little Three studios. And the Big Five are the ones that everybody will know about, you know, 20th Century Fox, um, Paramount, Columbia MGM all Mm -hmm. those sort of those sort of companies and they dominated every every aspect of the film industry so they made films in studios uh, they marketed and distributed them and they owned cinemas in which they could show those films so if you think about that from an economic point of view it means they're cleaning up every single stage of the film production
1: absolutely so there's that system set up pretty much from the word go so what changes what breaks it up
0: as you might imagine um, after world war ii Uh, The American government, which is generally interested in kind of free market capitalism and, um, you know, perfect competition and all those kind of Mm -hmm. ideas of uh, businesses competing against each other, isn't very happy that the film industry is dominated by a small number of companies. Um, So what happens is the US government brings a lawsuit against these, uh, against these companies to break them up, because effectively, they're acting as an oligopoly, they're fixing all the prices in the film industry, they're, you know, enforcing long kind of contracts on actors, Um, they're, they're sort of. Controlling what goes into cinemas and what doesn't, you know, right. all those sort of things, and the U.S. government decides this is against the spirit of, uh, you know, free market competition, and it and it clamps down on it in a in a famous lawsuit called the uh, called the Paramount um, suit, which is a which is a court action primarily against Paramount Studios, but actually has implications for all the other film studios that are in Hollywood at the time.
1: That's around, I want to say 1948?
0: Yeah, 48, 49, that, that kind of era. So, so really in the 10 years after that, that's when you're seeing the breakup of the, of the studio system and the end of the golden age as kind of studios have less and less power and directors or, or you know, and particularly the, the auteur style of director has more and more power while the studio mm-hmm. has less and less.
1: And some of those contracts that actors had to stick to were absolutely draconian, weren't they?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Some of them... I mean, uh, you know, there's, there's examples of, of actors who are who were really, you know, constantly fighting against the contracts that were given. Olivia de Havilland's the best example. She mm. she took her, her studio to, to, to court in, a, in, again, quite a famous uh, lawsuit that where the judge ruled that she was being discriminated against, um, or, you know, on the grounds of the length of the contract and what she was being asked to do. And, and this is a sort of really interesting prefiguring of all those sort of contractual disputes you have now between, yeah. you know, stars and, and, and their employers.
1: I feel like you could draw a line between Olivia de Havilland and her sort of contract disputes, going all the way through to Scarlett Johansson settling yeah. with with Disney about the Black Widow simultaneous opening.
0: Yeah, there's definitely there's definitely a connection there, and 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 it you know um, it it shows you a lot about how the the economics of 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 the film industry in some ways hasn't changed despite that kind of breakup and those and those kind of changes that came about in the late 1940s. Mm. There are still some things that kind of work in the same way.
1: So we covered the we covered the vertical integration mm. quite quite nicely. What does horizontal integration look like? If you're if you're 16 years old, you're trying to get this around your head. You want to be able to sort of have a be able to put it into a nutshell. How would you describe it?
0: Horizontal integration is where a company doing one thing takes over another company doing a similar or the same thing, right? So instead of moving up and down that supply chain, they move out uh, to take over competitors who are doing the same thing as them. Really good examples of that from modern day, perhaps, you know, thinking about something like Disney taking over Lucasfilm. This is a really good example of, of horizontal integration. And if you stretch it out to other media industries, you know, Facebook acquiring Instagram, one effectively social media platform taking over another social media platform because it brings it certain advantages. Those are kind of examples of horizontal integration. Uh, again in the golden age of Hollywood there are some examples of those where studios big studios eat up Mm. smaller studios but that's happening all the time even now it's a it's a really common kind of behavior in the in the media industries
1: okay this is where I start to sound really really thick so let's get ready for this okay because my understanding of horizontal integration was when companies own other companies that aren't direct related to the flow of their product but are tangential so the one that comes to mind is Disney, that they own a studio, but they also own theme parks. Am I am I in the right area the that?
0: Yes, yeah, so there's a lot of connection there in those in those things. So if you're thinking about the idea of cross media ownership, quite a lot of cross media ownership is is horizontal integration. So again, if you took, I mean, let's take the the Disney and Lucasfilm one both those companies made films both of them owned theme parks or had stakes in theme parks and there's a kind of attempt to acquire those businesses because there are a lot of what we would call synergies uh, between yeah. them so there's a, there's a, there's a there's a real sort of blurring between what these businesses uh, actually do but they're broadly in a competitive broadly in a competitive market so in in this case we talk about media brands being at the kind of heart of yeah. what these companies do and what they're really doing is acquiring Brands that are kind of in the same area of business that they are, so they're you know they're making films. uh, They acquire another company that makes films. There's some options to develop other other properties out of that, and and that's what they're looking to do. So there's quite a lot of crossover between those things.
1: The big example that's probably weighing on on a lot of people's minds when we think about this is Disney. The the way Mm. that they are buying stuff up like it is going out of style. I think Mm. the the first time I remember noticing it was the acquisition of Pixar in I want to say 2006 but I might be wrong
0: about then I think
1: yeah yeah the uh, the Pixar films kind of got folded into that the into that brand and that worked nicely and then you get and then you get Marvel in around about 09 mm. and then you get Lucasfilm later mm. on I, I think 2012, 2012. I could be wrong yeah 2012 yeah, 2012, yeah. and it was oh, what did George Lucas got he got like I think it was four something like 4 billion like yeah it's, 2 it's four, 2 billion four in cash and, and 2 yeah. in shares or something like that
0: it, it's yeah 4 billion and change like it's something Absolutely something along those lines
1: <laughs> crazy numbers there's a brilliant it picture of uh, of George Lucas stood in the middle with like Mickey and Minnie dressed up as like a stormtrooper and uh, mm. and as princess leia and George has just got this face that just says kill me
0: Kill yeah, me. Now. yeah but 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 there you go that's a great that's a great example of uh, horizontal integration because you're bringing those so mickey mouse as the stormtrooper is mm. is you know is the manifestation of horizontal integration right it's yeah. it's it's like those those two because like, those are two intellectual properties that previously you couldn't have put on this in the same image but the, yeah. but one one of the advantages of a horizontal integration is that all your intellectual property becomes their intellectual property. Exactly. The advantage of that is obviously financial, but there's also what economists would call economies of scale in there, which is where the bigger your company, the more you can do. So, so you can you can yeah. start to make all sorts of other things that um, kind of involve both those properties. If you if you want to do that.
1: Well, if you're if you're a nerd like me, and and I think you probably are, you notice things like in Spider-Man Homecoming, they are building a, a, a Lego Death Star. The fact that you have that, that easy access to another intellectual property mm-hmm. makes it more true to life, because prior to that, you'd have to invent something that, that, mm-hmm. in order to get around it, so I think that's that's great. The thing that, I don't want to say worries me, but it does concern me, is the way we seem to be heading more towards, like, vertical integration in the mm-hmm. modern day, in terms of streaming platforms. So, like, where do you think the film? media industry is going in in terms of that.
0: So I think you're almost back to a situation in which you've got kind of new types of vertical integration. Mm-hmm. So let's take a, a, as an example a company like Amazon, okay? So obviously people will be sitting out there thinking about Amazon as a as a huge kind of, you know, commercial distribution company effectively. And yeah. it's taken that model and it's applied it to to the online shopping model and applied it to the media. So now what you see is Amazon making its own programs. So it's got Amazon Productions. It's distributing those through its own platforms. You know, you think about Amazon Prime as an exhibition platform, if you like. Mm. But you've also got things like IMDb, which is a kind of very clever distribution platform because what it does is it gives you all that information that you want as a, about film, and then it offers you the option to watch it right so so you can so you've you've got a a kind of and you can watch trailers and you can see the publicity stills and all those things and IMDB is like we think about it as you know as media and film teachers a kind of useful resource but of course it's also a really complex distribution platform as Mm -hmm. well because it it runs all those things that we would think about as traditional distribution activities like like trailers like posters like publicity stills all those things that we would you know expect to see traditional film distributor do and then, of course, it offers us the chance to watch it through Amazon Prime. So if yeah. you've got Amazon Prime, we're watching that. It's an exhibition platform in our front room, and we're seeing all those things. So if you take that example, really in the in the digital area, that's a good example of a fully vertically integrated digital media company. Um, mm-hmm. So from every stage from production right through to exhibition.
1: I think the thing I was thinking about is in 2019, Disney accounted for about 40%. Of the of the US box office, which is mm. ridiculous. I mean, Warner Brothers was the the second closest with like thirteen point eight. So at some point, surely we're going to get a government body stepping in and mm. saying, "Come on, lads, <laughs> you've had, <laughs> you've had your fun." <laughs> and also, it's getting really hard to you've got to have in order to sort of if you are if you want to sort of keep up with the, the cultural conversation and, and the zeitgeist you've got to have a Prime account you've got to have a Netflix account mm. or Now TV or Disney Plus and mm. financially you have to kind of mm. swap in and swap out sometimes I think you know to, to actually see stuff
0: so if we were thinking about this as a sort of crystal ball gazing activity the mm-hmm. the thing is to think about what will happen with um, in two ways so one is to think about what will happen for us as consumers, like you say, now we have multiple subscriptions, uh, and that's uh, there's going to come a point at which people aren't willing to pay any more subscriptions. Mm-hmm. So I think what you will see is some kind of bundling model, you know, with broadcasters like Sky at the moment, where yeah. they're kind of offering deals on bundled packages. For most people, that will probably come through their phone company, through their like their mobile phone contract, I think that's where you'll see that kind of bundling come on and people will be kind of casting it via the phone and stuff like that. The other side is to think that that point you made about the, the kind of governmental aspect of it, the, the sort of state aspect of, you know, something like Disney, the extent to which it's a, an oligopoly or a monopoly. I think that sort of governments have kind of lost their appetite a bit for challenging uh, those things at the at the extent of trying to break them up i think what you will see as a kind of counterweight to it is probably uh, more governmental support for kind of uh, certain types of competitor and you yeah. already see this a little bit with things like mubi you know where where mubi is a kind of collaboration between some uh, commercial partners and some state broadcasting partners as a sort of alternative kind of uh, you know exhibition and distribution platform uh, and I, and I think that's that's the sort of thing you'll see you'll see kind of alternative models cro- crop up because
1: Are you thinking about things like Britbox as well because you've got you've got BBC and you've got a yeah, lot Yeah exactly so Brit, yeah. Britbox
0: is a really great example of that kind of thing it's got you know two it's a partnership of broadcasters some of which are state effectively state subsidized it's got a kind of archive of stuff that it can kind of distribute but it's also making new mm. stuff you know th- those kind of things, and I think yes. I think that's what you'll see. I, I don't think that governments have much appetite anymore for trying to break up big oligopolies. I think what they're more likely to do is nudge kind of alternative kinds of competition. That's my kind of personal view. You know,
1: do you know what this? Is, I, I could talk to you all <laughs> night about this because this is like it's fascinating. this is my my exact level of nerdery, and I really <laughs> appreciate it. Steve, thank you so much for talking to us. I really appreciate it. No, you're it. very
2: welcome, Giles. It's been a pleasure.
1: So, Phil, that was Dr. Steve Connolly talking about vertical and horizontal integration. What do you think?
2: Uh, he's he's read about that before, aunty. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's definitely got. Oh uh, no, he's definitely got. <laughs> 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 Are you okay? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. sorry listeners To for those of you who don't know I'm, uh, I've got a cold at the moment so
2: every time Phil makes me laugh it feels like I might actually die yeah sorry I'm not trying to kill you I promise again pleasure to listen yeah. to somebody who's very much um, well read in their subject and um, just to hear more about horizontal vertical integration just get a bit more insight in it uh, especially with real-world examples as well, um, it really does sort of pull it all together and make it easy to explain. Complex phrase, but once you once you figure out what it is, quite straightforward.
1: Was there anything that you didn't get? And because I realised, like I say, I got we got pretty nerdy
2: pretty quickly on that one. <laughs> personally, I thought it was quite easy to understand. Basically, because yeah. it gave real world examples, such as like, um, when they're talking about horizontal integration, talking about Disney buying up things like Marvel yeah. or and Star Wars. Using those examples helped me sort of get into it.
1: That's one of my favourite things actually about, well, I mean let's put aside the terrifying fact that Disney seems to own about 30-40% of the entertainment industry and focus on the fact (laughs) that you're allowed to reference Star Wars in a Spider-Man film or vice versa this sort of thing. I love that because that's what we do in real life we obviously reference things that are, are existing intellectual property when you see films and TV shows referencing made up stuff and you're like, okay, well obviously this means that, and you've got to try and sort of deconstruct yeah. it a little
2: bit. But when they're able to actually just talk about the actual thing, I love that. Yeah, it's like, I was watching I Galaxy think, but... Battles with obi Two Kenobi or something like that. It's just like, that's not really how exactly, that works. Exactly, you know? exactly. You're like, where are you though? Where are you though, guys? Yeah. <laughs> if listeners want to learn more about this
1: topic, then you need to make sure you check out Jonathan Nunn's article from issue 72 of Media Magazine where he applies the ideas in Curran and Seaton's book Power Without Responsibility to Disney and their rapidly expanding empire. The, uh, the story about Olivia de Havilland is one of my favourite things. Do you know about that story? No, I didn't know about that. Okay, so... Olivia De Havilland is such a G. She is on the cusp of H. Studios used to do this thing where you get a seven-year contract, right? Okay, so you are—you've got to make films for them for seven years, or they will loan you out to another studio where they will get paid fat stacks of cash for the rental charge of of, sort of putting you out to someone but the thing is, what they would do is they would count it as seven years of actual working time, not seven chronological years, so if if Olivia de Havilland gets offered a role that she doesn't want to do, that's bad for her her career, bad for her her image or whatever, she'll say, no I'm not doing it, then the studio will come back and say, okay, you're suspended until we find something you do want to do, and what they would do is they would say, okay, well the time is, the clock is paused right now, and they'd say, no, you've still got that time that you have to serve on your on your thing, right. and what they would do sometimes if actors were getting too big for their boots or anything, they would give them roles that they knew that the actor wouldn't want to do because it would sort of negotiate down their price for things and stuff like that. And Olivia De Havilland got absolutely sick of this, so she took them to court. And then the the court in California were like, "No, seven years is seven years. That's it. Okay." It's a really great story hearing about that stuff. So, quick homework question for you. Can you sum up horizontal and vertical integration in 10 seconds or less? That's what I'm leaving for you, listeners. Have a think on that one. So now it's time to find out what's happening in the latest issue of Media Magazine. And today we have a special guest to come and tell us all about it. We have Shahina Uddin, who is a freelance journalist who writes regularly for Raw News at her campus. Shahina, how are you doing?
3: Hi, I'm well, thanks. How are you?
1: Yeah, yeah, we are... uh, I mean, I am recovering from a cold, so I've uh, I've got... Oh. Um, and of course, that's that's delightful with the asthma. But other than that, I'm doing fine.
2: I'm, I, oh, I'll I'm, get well soon. I've been in the Sorry. cold all day, so I <laughs> kind of know how you feel, Giles. Oh, dear. Yeah. So, Shahina, is this your first
1: issue writing for Media Magazine?
3: Yes, yes, it is. And, you know, I'm, I'm, it's just such a pleasure to be speaking to you both today because I actually grew up like reading the media magazine for my school's subscription. Ah. So this feels very, very surreal right now.
1: In this issue, we've got, um, there's the there's uh, an article on, uh, on the new Bond film, isn't there?
3: Yes, Bond Bounces Back by Mark Ramey. Yeah, this is a really excellent article discussing the latest addition to the James Bond film franchise, No Time to Die. This article explains how This film has essentially saved the cinema industry, which we all know was hit very hard during this pandemic. And the film itself had to be pushed back twice during COVID, but it was finally released in September. And with something as big as Bond, such a cultural icon, how can it not be a blockbuster hit?
2: True, yeah, it's it's one of those things When when Bond starts to suffer at the box office You know things are going a little bit south That was the thing, it was the first one to get pushed back And you're like, oh, oh, maybe this Covid thing Might be serious
1: if we can't see our new James Bond film, you know, I absolutely loved it It was obviously partially written by Phoebe Waller-Bridge Who is my absolute hero The thing I found about it is It's a Bond film that has No misogyny in it mm. You've still got female characters, they're still glamorous They're still capable, they're still badass
2: And I couldn't find it the ickiness in it that's the best way i can put it you know it's something i quite like about the new franchise as well is that it's it's following an arc rather than it be just sort mm. of like bond's villain of the year kind of thing like it, it doesn't yeah. just go back to the, the, the same sort of equilibrium as it were it's it's there, there are consequences uh, to actions and it's refreshing Absolutely. to have you know explore the character a bit more in these last couple of films What else have we got in this this issue, Sheena?
3: Well, next up is Beau Barnum OK, in which Kirsty Warrow does a fantastic job at reviewing Netflix's pandemic-produced comedy special Inside. And this article examines celebrity culture and this idea of the public versus private perception. And it focuses on how celebrities can kind of create this illusion of reality mm-hmm. through parasocial relationships with their fan bases.
1: Shahina, what do you think of it?
3: Yeah, I think as you know, Jen said we have quite a dark sense of humour, and so we often like revel in, in like the catharsis of, of like dark human and
1: did you read the careers download because it's on it's on Lindsay walker because i actually met uh Lindsay whilst working on phil's film she was yes what was she
2: doing was she doing cameras on that? Um, yeah. so she wasn't on camera yeah. i think she was more doing lighting and she also helped me build the set so we did the careers download episode
1: on her and if you should if you get the chance to check it out
3: and finally, I'd like to highlight the article Tell Everyone by Caroline Reid, and this is a brilliant read on Nia da Costa's depiction of Candyman. Da Costa is the first black female director to open at number one in the box office. And this article breaks down all the key themes of gentrification, classism and black trauma covered in the original 1992 version and explores how this 2021 edition continues to do justice to that legacy in a new context.
1: The person who wrote this article, Caroline Reed. Caroline Reed's the same woman that wrote the the One article last issue. Ah. So Caroline Reed continues to be n- my nemesis, not because she beat me to the punch on this one, but because her Candyman article is so good.
3: Well, the article discusses a lot of the the beautiful cinematography of the film, and you know the use of reflective mirrored surfaces mm. and artistic use of shadow puppets to tell the story. Very difficult topics concerning violence and oppression, and it's really all about. Exposing the true horrors of racism and police brutality, and like you said, it's it's one of the many Black-led horror films that are coming out in recent years, such as Get Out and Us.
2: I
1: kind of went down a little bit of a rabbit hole with Candyman. I was eight when it came out over in the states, and it was one of those wor- one of those sort of works that kind of fed its way into like the the popular culture. So kids at school were talking about saying Candyman in the mirror five times, even if they hadn't actually seen the film. The yeah. original idea for Candyman is he's played by Tony Todd and Tony Todd has the most amazing voice you've ever heard you know? Do you know where the character's from originally? Uh, so the character of Candyman is from a Clive Barker short story called The Forbidden, set in a down and out kind of estate in Liverpool so I've just got visions in my head of like a Scouse Candyman and it's it's so wonderful
2: Yeah, are right on I'm the Candyman, i <laughs> To come after you, and I'm gonna stop you with your
3: hook. I'm gonna, sorry, I'm gonna stab you with your I absolutely hope that.
1: I, you know, when I was Brilliant. writing this bit, I said to myself, I'm not going to do a Scouse accent.
2: I'm not going to... That's basically a hate crime. So, Phil, thank you for <laughs> taking that it's- off my hands for me. I've got family from Liverpool. Basically, I'm allowed to do it, right? Candyman, originally,
1: the idea from him was like a, was a, a black Dracula. The sort of director for the for the original film felt that like there weren't enough sort of black monsters uh on 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 in film and stuff. So Candyman was like the first attempt at getting a oh well, I don't know if it's the first one of the
2: first attempts to get like a sort of really sort of terrifying black Villain. I remember watching the 1992 version. It feels like a very vulnerable version of a monster in a yeah. lot of ways, and and in in that it's even scarier. You know, it's 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 f- incredible. Did you know in the original
1: Candyman, there's the the opening shots of it where it's looking down straight on the streets, mm. which is apparently one yeah. of the first times they ever did the did a shot like that. And then in the opening credits of the new 2021 version, you get it from the streets looking up. So you get this real feeling like both versions are kind of in conversation with each other, you know? Yeah. And there's this lovely, delightful sort of meta bit where it sort of brings in the idea that there's more than one Candyman. There's more than one sort of like... Uh, black man who's been brutally killed in in mob mob violence and that they all kind of become kind of there's this beautiful phrase where it says something like you know you can really make it your own but some details have to stay the same for consistency yeah and it's just this lovely little meta thing in there and the yeah and the last thing in the magazine we want to talk about is of course Shahina wrote about Miss Marvel coming up didn't
3: you yes for those who aren't really familiar with her Miss Marvel, also known as Kamala Han, is a new superhero set to join the MCU in a Disney Plus series. And Kamala is a shape-changing, mask-wearing, 16-year-old super-Muslim from Jersey City. And so, as a Muslim Pakistani female Marvel fan, Kamala is a character that I really relate to and her story really, really appeals to me. But she's also a character who's just got so much personality and spunk. Her appeal is very much universal. She's a teenager, she plays video games, she writes fan fiction about the avengers in her spare time. So, when I heard that they were going to be turning her comic book series into a Disney Plus series, it's incredibly incredibly excited.
1: I uh, I recently caught up with uh, the first sort of issues of uh, a Kamala Khan cuz I think if you if you're watching a film when you're vaguely familiar with the source material that adds a lot to it doesn't it mm. yeah i agree yeah I agree. definitely definitely this is this is your first time writing for it isn't it yeah you absolutely knocked it out <laughs> of the park on the first go Aww. here you know you've not given thank yourself you so any room to improve you've done an amazing job
3: oh thank you so much that's so kind of you to say
1: so um, you, your thing was was talking predominantly about about representation in there wasn't it about yes the mm-hmm. fact that orientalism has the sort of tendency to sort of take anybody brown and just lump them into the same group am I, am I reading that right?
3: Yeah exactly um, a lot of the time when we have Muslim representation on the well Muslim representation on the screen in general it's yeah. very scarce and when we do have it it's often very stereotypical depictions that feed into the idea of orientalism yeah. they're often portrayed as dangerous terrorists or you know oppressed victims and there's really no in between it's just really perpetuating that idea of orientalism which is a concept by edward Said, which is essentially the idea that the west views the east through these exotic and backward stereotypes yeah. so the fact that we have a character like kamala who is not only a muslim protagonist but also a superhero mm-hmm. is a really really big step in the right direction for positive representation on our screens i think
1: I think the thing I'm going to be fascinated is not quite her, what Kamala's like but what her parents are going to be like because in these kind of stories the parents are the authority figures they end up having to be the ones who are repressive and sort of trying to sort of restrict their kids' freedoms and stuff like that which I mean is what parents tend to do in teen related stories anyway so yeah. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what they what they look what they look like in this you know
3: yeah definitely I think when it comes to parents, it's always very difficult. Um, but when it comes to especially South Asian or Pakistani Muslim parents, they're often seen as very overly exaggerated in terms of their strictness and their, their discipline. And that's one thing I'm a little bit cautious about in in terms of translating the comics onto, yeah. onto the screen, because I, I really hope they don't perpetuate this false dichotomy of oh here's the acceptable you know good liberal westernized muslims versus the you know the strict practicing extremist muslims because there is that like trope that you know the more practicing or the more cultural one is the more dangerous they seem to be
1: yeah definitely well listen shahina thank you so much for coming and joining us today i hope we didn't freak you out too much
3: (laughs) no i really enjoyed myself thank you so much
1: now it's time for Two Minute Terminology Time. Two Minute
3: Terminology Time.
1: This week, our question comes from George. Let's hear George's question.
3: Hi, Giles. I'm Phil. I'm George from Sale Grammar School. Could you let me know what is a MacGuffin?
1: OK, so, Phil, the question is, what is a MacGuffin? You have two minutes to tell us what that
2: is and no more. You ready? I'm always ready. <laughs> OK. Three, two. One, go. A MacGuffin is a plot device, usually in the form of an object, person, idea, or goal, used in cinematic storytelling to motivate the characters, which has significance to the characters, but is itself not significant. Another term for them is a plot coupon coined by film critic Nick Lowe, as an object that's only purpose is to advance the story. A good example of a MacGuffin can be found in examples as far back as Arthurian legend, with the Holy Grail. Usually, a character would be in pursuit of the Holy Grail for reasons that only the characters would care about. However, with the actual purpose of the Grail never truly being revealed, it would suggest that, in terms of the plot, it itself is of no significance. At least not to the audience. In addition to driving the action of a story, it can also be used to reveal character traits as a means of progressing the plot. A famous example of this would be the word Rosebud in Citizen Kane. The film follows a reporter trying to uncover the significance of the term. It is revealed that Rosebud was the sled that Kane was playing on on the day that he was taken away from his family as a child. This MacGuffin, therefore, represents the loss of innocence. The use of a MacGuffin was popularised by legendary filmmaker Alfred Hitchcock, who once described a MacGuffin as the thing that the spies are after, but the audience don't care about. (laughs) Boom! That is 1 minute 24 seconds That is awesome Yeah
1: you absolutely nailed that um, Nailed that right on there So like the In um, in North, West, North by Northwest Cary Grant has to chase down this microfilm And we never see what's on the microfilm And we don't particularly care about it We just want to see him yeah. Climbing up George Washington's nose On Mount Rushmore don't we Everyone loves mm. that bit Everyone <laughs> loves that bit We use MacGuffins for, for absolutely everything Most recently I was just thinking about Fast and Furious Where they need to get these two Sort of like spherical pieces of technology together and once they do they'll have like unlimited power in the on a global stage and rest of it and none of us really give a toss about that we just
2: want to see people driving in fast and you know magnet plane is that genuinely what the latest plot of the latest Fast and Furious is Has it got that out of hand
1: <laughs> I kid you not they do actually go into space in a in a Ford Fiesta so it's gotten crazy
2: Oh man that's amazing Can you imagine just there uh, like right I'm going to go nick to space in Ford Fiesta seeing a tick <laughs> you know just
1: <laughs> Yeah but Phil you got to remember it's not about the
2: McGuffin it's about
1: family family <laughs> I'm Vin
2: Diesel. I like family. That is what a MacGuffin is. We don't have to care about it, but as long as the characters care about it, the plot proceeds and everybody goes home happy. Everyone (laughs) goes home happy, exactly.
1: That's us nearly done, ladies and gents. If you want more Giles and Phil content, you can check out the God of Film podcast, where we... Looking to the best that cinema and TV has to offer and see if we find any biblical parallels, along with a lot of film trivia and some absolutely top-shelf guests. Check it out. In the meantime, until we see you next time, have a very happy Christmas and a brilliant new year. We'll see you then for even more amazing content.
2: Bye. Happy Christmas. Happy New Year. Bye.
1: The Media Mag Podcast is hosted and created by Giles Goff and Phil Coleman. Mixing by Phil, editing by Giles. Our theme tune is composed by Rick Lee and our logo is designed by Rebecca Scambler. Our executive producer is Claire Pollard. The Media Mag Podcast is a Dask production created for the English and Media Centre. Please rate and review,
0: unless it's a one star, in which case, please tell Phil through the medium of interpretive dance.